BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the updates on the great writers we have coming up over the next few weeks. And if you want to see photos of the studio and the cocktails getting made, check out my Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please leave a comment. I want to hear about the writers you want to hear on this show. I've been getting a lot of great booking ideas from you guys. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with Lawrence Wright. Lawrence is an award-winning journalist and author of three novels and 11 works of nonfiction. He's won the Pulitzer Prize, among many, many other literary awards. He's also a staff writer for The New Yorker, and he is, without a doubt, one of our great writers and thinkers of today. His latest is the novel Mr. Texas, which I tore through and loved, and it's getting terrific reviews everywhere you go. Lawrence, it's really an honor to have you in here with us today. Thanks for coming in. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Doug. Thanks for having me. I am also thrilled with the cocktail selection today. I have heard <laughs> of the Vesper Martini, but I've never actually had one. So I actually had to look it up to make sure I make it the right way. Well, you can't be a mixologist without going all the way to Vesper. All right. Well, it's on. So I've got, we've got our ice in the shaker here. So this is vodka. This was... Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you ever had this kind. It was recommended by Dennis Lehane, so we're... All right, he would know. He would know. You know he's normally a Russian vodka guy, but I think he's protesting, so he has this Polish uh, vodka that he recommends now. Bar Hill Gin. This is a gift from Chris Bojalian, if you know uh, Chris. This is distilled in Vermont. So listeners know it's vodka gin and Lilit Blonde. Just a bit of that. Yeah. With a lemon twist. So I'm going to work on the twist. Not the best lemon here for making the twist, but it'll work. Go around the rim on that a little bit. Yeah, you're doing it right. Mike has our Texas drinking team glass, which is appropriate (laughs) to the novel. (laughs) Which... This is how Mike does. It doesn't need to be the fancy glass. It's just the... Uh, the, the larger one. The larger one, right. <laughs> okay, and off we go. We'll make sure you have an event with the esteemed David Grand this evening and uh-huh. other events so we cannot knock your socks off, but we'll make sure we have enough to settle in with. I'm especially happy about this, too, because the last few 
recordings, the request has been for coffee, which is fun and also uh, nice. I enjoy coffee, but it's yeah. nice to settle in with a drink. So here we go. Okay. There we go. Got it. All right. Thank Cheers, you. sir. It's yes, great to indeed. see you. Cheers. Yeah. Is that how you're job. used to it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you. That's the first I've ever made. You know the history of this drink. No. It was invented by Ian Fleming. And uh, it could have been that, you know, he had a, a bottle of gin that was nearly out. <laughs> and he probably <laughs> it filled it filled the top, probably. <laughs> but um, it became a drink, you know, and we always associate James Bond with martinis. Mm-hmm. But, and this is kind of a martini, but this is Ian Fleming's contribution to the, to the lore. Oh, well, now I, I like it even more. I've been reading and sort of living in that era of British espionage from the 1900 to 1950 period. And I, I love all that stuff. Well, I, it was my experience since I, I do like martinis. And when I was in Britain last time, I had been hiking with my wife and sat down at a restaurant. I thought, you know, I'd like to have a good martini. And good martinis are hard. You know, I don't know why they're so hard. But anyway, I thought this is James Bond land. So I said, I'll have a a, a, a martini and a, you know shaken not stirred and uh, <laughs> they brought it out with fruit you know a little umbrella on it and i said wait <laughs> you wouldn't do this to james bond would you and, so, and i had similar experiences in, in britain so i've given up ordering martinis in england britain of all pla- I, w- I would have thought they would be this classic right down the middle martini i'm surprised Absolutely. to hear that yeah M- miami i would think maybe you'd get a martini with a with a piece of watermelon yeah. or something. My gosh. Well, I'd love to start back at the beginning with you. Okay. You were born in Oklahoma. Yeah. And then moved to Dallas, I read. Well, there was an interim move to Abilene, Texas. My okay. my dad, after he got back, he was in World War II in Korea. And like a lot of these returning servicemen, he was really hungry to you know get his life started. And uh, he had a law degree, but he didn't didn't like doing that, so he decided to become a banker. I think because he grew up in the Dust Bowl in mm-hmm. Kansas, and when he was 12 years old, he was the brains in the family, and his father took him to the bank to negotiate the crop loan. <laughs> and so I think he decided which side of the table he wanted to be on. But he was started out in this little bank in Abilene, Texas, and then he got a job as a president in his bank in a strip mall in Dallas, which he built up into a major institution. But so, you know, that was his path. Wow. Okay. So then once you get to Abilene, then you've been fairly Texas based. I know college in Tulane. Yeah. And and you were overseas uh, in Cairo teaching English after college, right. right? Yeah. Yeah. I was a conscientious objector during Vietnam. And uh, you had to serve two years of alternative service. Mm-hmm. And this was back during the Nixon recession. And usually they were like bedpan jobs in hospitals. And those were all taken, <laughs> fortunately. And uh, I, uh, the, you, had to, you had to be at least 50 miles from your home and had to pay very little and had to be nominally in the interest of the United States. And so I came to New York and I thought I'd get a job. The UN would send me far, far away and pay me very little. And they said no. Uh, they gave me a list of American institutions abroad that might satisfy that. Mm-hmm. And one of them, the American University of Cairo, had an office across the street at 866 UN Plaza. 
And I didn't know we didn't have diplomatic relations with Egypt. <laughs> you know, we didn't. We didn't had. You know, it was there were practically no Westerners in Egypt. It was a Soviet military base, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they said half an hour after I got in, can you leave tonight? And that should have been a clue. <laughs> but, <laughs> we'll take anyone. Let's go. Uh, I said, no, I can't leave tonight. And my girlfriend's back in Boston. Haven't turned, told my parents what I'm doing. How old are you at this time? I was 21. Wow. And can you leave tomorrow? I said, sure, I can go tomorrow. So I flew to Cairo and landed at midnight and taught my first class at nine in the morning. And that oh was my, my, gosh. my, you have to understand, a very provincial boy from Dallas plunged into, I didn't even know what language they spoke, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, thrown into this very foreign and very poor uh, country, very alien from anything I knew, you know, it's a Muslim yeah. country. Uh, uh, and, you know, there weren't any Americans. I mean, it was just a handful of people at the American University in Cairo. Mm-hmm. The president of the university was a CIA agent, we learned while I was there, but they didn't have anywhere else I to love put those him. stories, you yeah. know, like the person you least expect is actually in the CIA. Well, you know, normally they would hide him out in the embassy, but we didn't have an embassy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he was, um, he was a very elegant figure, but, uh, it was, he was outed while I was there and, uh, and you know, the board of regents or whatever governing body was horrified and, you know, they were going to, so they had no idea that he was, I, 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 honestly, I think they must've known some, you know, mm. but pretended to be outraged, but the Egyptians knew <laughs> and they said, no, don't bother to replace him. We knew yeah. all about that. So yeah. it's funny. You say you were from this provincial background. I referring to Texas, I guess, but with Oklahoma, I can never hear the word Oklahoma without thinking of Michael Caine in dirty, rotten scoundrels. Uh-huh. And it's like, Rupert will love Oklahoma. He loves to run and run. <laughs> And then Steve Martin does his thing as Rupert. Um, I heard you on the Axe Files just the other day. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned in there that at one point you were thinking you might be a poet in the West Village. Uh, yeah. I, you know, it was, uh, it was more of a style choice. You know, I, I don't read poetry. I don't know. I'm not that interested in it. Um, and I had no idea what real estate was costing in, in the village. You know, that, the idea that you, it could support a, a poet was crazy. But it was, uh, you know, walking around with a beret or something like that. I don't know exactly what I had in mind. But I wanted to be a writer. But the the kind of writer was a blank to be filled in. Mm-hmm. Who who are you admiring and reading at that time? I mean, is this still like the Fitzgerald Hemingway types? Or was oh, uh, yeah, to, I, loved, uh, I loved those guys. Uh, and there was... You know, Gunter Grass uh, yeah. uh, and the Tim, the Tim Tim cup, Drum, Tim Drum, right? And yeah. uh, I was I I loved uh, 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 Philip Roth. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the uh, a lot of the, uh, A. J. Liebling was a, a pole star for me when I I was in at Tulane in New Orleans, and uh, A. J. Liebling was a famous writer for the New Yorker, and. Uh, you know, he was a war correspondent and so on, but he was just, he had a wonderfully light touch, mm-hmm. very amusing. And uh, he wrote a book called The Earl of Louisiana, which was about Earl Long, who was the governor of Louisiana. He was Huey Long's younger brother. And 
totally outrageous character. I mean, Texas is so tame compared to Louisiana. It's just <laughs> well, nuts. You know, I think that there's something about being at the bottom of the country where this, <laughs> some sort of lunacy <laughs> sinks to the bottom. Yeah. And uh, but he he wrote this book that. It, it 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 excited me because of the style, and you know that he would write about politics so insightfully, but also with a sense of, um, you know, humor, compassion, and uh, and also judgment. All of those things were a feature of his writing. Yeah. So your nonfiction debut, nineteen seventy nine, ghetto. Uh, Ghetto Children Among the Amish. Yeah, Amish? Amish? Amish. Amish. Amish I, yeah. It was called City Children Country Summer, another <laughs> non-resonant title. You mm-hmm. know, the, it was my first book, and it was a rare book the moment it came off the press. But. Yeah. Oh, that's so, so listeners know when Larry... So it's Lawrence on the book jacket, but Larry mm-hmm. in conversation. When Larry and I were uh, first met out in California... I, my my book, the title was in flux, and we ended up going with the title that you know I revere Larry, and he was he kind of liked the title we didn't go with, and the end, uh, so I left for the I, airport I would all say out that of sorts. You, you've done all right with it if you're on the bestseller list. It proves your case. Well, yeah, the sales team at SNS anyway proves their case because I was I was kind of with you. I liked the other one a little better, but yeah, say la vie. Uh, and then so for, for nonfiction debut 1979, your fiction debut was 2000. Uh, yeah. God's favorite. So a stretch of time there, yeah, um, before you turned to nonfiction. But you also you did the 1998 film, The Siege. Right. Um, one of the things that when we get to the process session, I, I would love to talk about the variety of work you've done. I love the many different things you've done, from nonfiction to fiction to screenplays to plays yeah. to essays. Yeah. Um, in fact, why don't we, let's jump into process a little okay. bit. How do you select what the next project is going to be? This is the hardest question uh, because. Everything else is, is uh, you know, a matter of craft. But knowing what you want to write, it has to do with your identity and your imagination. So it's, a, it's the, you know, how do you want to spend your time? Mm-hmm. And the older you get, the more precious that time becomes. And so you really start to weigh these things. I, I find that there's, you know... I never felt like there was a lighted path in my career. But looking back, I can see that there are themes, you know, mm-hmm. that I've always been interested in religion, for instance. And uh, I was a pious teenager in Dallas. And so I've experienced, you know, what religion can mean to a person. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, as a reporter, I look at, we think of, you know, politics as being our meat and potatoes. But, People can have strong political opinions without that affecting their behavior at all. But if they have strong religious views, oftentimes governs their life. And so rarely is this touched on in journalism. You know, I so I have a whole section on this very thing I wanted to talk to you about because I I was I'm not I don't see it exactly the same as you. And and I've been wondering why, because this was in The New York Times. There's a piece on Larry. When you become a revered figure, a legendary figure in the literary world, occasionally The Times will do this. I think it's called buy the book thing oh, or something. Yeah, so they do right. a Q and A with, with the with the titans of of the craft. And in that article, it's just out in the Times a week or two ago. And I read it, and you touch on this a little bit in there, and you say that essentially religion is greater than politics in terms of what drives us insane, you know, or what's yeah. you know what can drive right. our behaviors a little bit. And I have found in the last few years. It's not that way. Now, now, certainly in the 1500s and 1600s, you could interpret some Bible passage yeah. one way or the other, and that would be a war between nations. 
But these days, it's like you have a difference of political opinion, and it's like pistols at dawn. And I don't see that as much with religion. And I'm wondering if it's because I live in New York City, where nobody goes to church. Yeah. It's very, very secular here. Religion hardly ever comes up. I have friends of all different faiths. I just left a shiva, actually, like an hour yeah. ago. Um, I'm not Jewish myself, but um, I have many friends who are. And religion doesn't come into play with me at all. But the politics, man, that is like, for people that I see, it's their first and sometimes only lens on how they see a person right. or an event. I Do you think it might be regional? Yeah, I, I th when you're explaining your perspective, a way I look at it is that, you know, politics tends to be uh, at a kind of emotional, uh, intellectual level. You know, people subscribe to an ideology. They have a point of view about the world. Hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean that they go home and behave one way or the other, you know, but they're affixed to these ideas. Religion is is more almost genetic in terms of, you know, how people respond. People respond to situations depending on their belief, not because of their politics. Mm. It might be that, you know, because of your politics, you would go out and get a gun or you would vote for Ted Cruz or something like that. Uh, but, you know, many of those same people would also be going down to Nicaragua to help them after an earthquake or something like that. These are powerfully motivating things. And, you know, people who are, uh, you know, po simply political, they don't engage in that kind of behavior. Mm -hmm. And the other thing about that, what they have in common, I think, is that both the polit politics and religion spin off communities. They're communities of faith or identity or, uh, or you know, sort of, I'm not sure what the right political word for it would be, you know, incl ideological inclinations. Mm -hmm. and, but they, the, what they have in common is that you, you are a part of that community mm -hmm. and you subscribe to this set of values. And that's very powerful. And you know, it, it's oh, there's a kind of shopping uh, quality for a lot of people. They're looking for a community, and uh, and they wind up uh, joining a particular church, or they join. You know, they become political or really deeply ideological, or you know, they, they can be part of a cult. You know, all mm -hmm. of those things. But it's not so much what the what the object is, it's the community that surrounds it. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times you'll find the people with the deepest commitment are committed to the craziest stuff. You know, I think sometimes it, it's like, you know, to pick on Scientology, for instance, you know, there's a, or, or it, Mormons. I, I have a section on this too, by the way, I want to ask you about Scientology. Uh, okay, well, both of them, you know, to an outsider, the, the, basis of their faith looks crazy mm -hmm. and you think wow how can you believe that it's my experience in dealing with a lot of these people that it's not so much that they believe it as they associate with the people that do mm -hmm. and the higher the, the the more irrational uh the barriers to the admittance into this community the higher you have to climb to get over the wall. And so once you're inside this community of Scientology or, you know, whatever, uh, you know, sort of deeply committed organization it would be, 
you're you're more firmly affixed mm-hmm. than you would be in a looser environment. Yeah. It's, it's different from joining the Methodist Church. Yeah, it's, as you talk, it's actually helping me see it a little bit your way. To credit to your persuasion, but uh, you know, <laughs> I, I'm sort of in the New York metropolitan, you know, small world of Trump Biden mania and cable news and those kinds of things. But if you pull back that sort of wide angle lens of global reality yeah. and imagine you know, women in the Middle East who can't participate in sports or get an education or can't dress a certain way. I mean, these are, that's a level beyond Trump and Biden mania, really, I think. So you're you're probably right about that. But returning to process, I do see some threads in your work. I mean, for example, I mean, one uncanny one is you write the screenplay for The Siege, but then you also write the Pulitzer Prize-winning Looming Tower, which, you know, there are some connections in that material in a way. Uh, I don't know if that was fortuitous, really, or or if because of the siege you dove into that project deliberately because of the background there. No, it did. It, it was a part of my decision. Uh, it was weird when I wrote the siege. It just uh, it, it only arose. And so, listeners, now this is starring Bruce Willis, Denzel Washington, about really uh, yeah, Annette Bening. Yeah, Annette Bening. Yeah, terrific movie about really a, a an attack. And a, I guess we sort of have like martial law, really, to kind of right. get the city. To sort of write the plane. The question, in an you know, that uh, the the movie poses is, what would happen if terrorism came to America? You know, this is 1998 when it came out, and you know, I was thinking it already had in London and Paris. What if it happened in New York? And so that was. It could have been, you know, Sioux Falls, you know, but I chose New York, and uh, the reason that it. You know, this producer had the idea of a woman in the CIA, and that was where it began. And so I thought, you know, the Soviet Union is dissolved. You know, where, where's the enemy? And I realized there was a real enemy of the CIA, and it was the FBI. And they were fighting over who was going to control terrorism inside the United States. And that was the architecture. And, of course, uh, even before 9-11, um, and you know, the trailers came out in uh, August, August of '98, um, and the uh, in Cape Town, South Africa, there was a a bombing in a Planet Hollywood uh, by an Islamist group that said that they were protesting uh, the you know the forthcoming movie, The Siege, and you know uh, two. People lost their lives. A little girl lost her leg. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, and this movie wasn't even out yet. It was a horrible. You know, I, I, I didn't feel guilty, but I felt assaulted mm-hmm. uh, intellectually and creatively uh, assaulted by a group that rejected what you know we had to say. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that same month, the embassy bombings took place in in Africa. And uh, you know, 224 people were killed, and that was uh, Al Qaeda's first assault on America. So, by the time the movie came out, uh, you know, we'd already been through uh, this horrible experience. Mm-hmm. And so, when 9/11 actually happened, yes, uh, you know, I had in some ways imagined terrorism in America, mm-hmm. and then it happened, and I felt. I felt a kind of mandate that I I had to write about it. Well, I mean, the the world is glad that you did, and so was the Pulitzer Prize Committee, apparently, yeah, well, <laughs> who, it was, it was who awarded you. 
Um, couple technical geeky questions about yeah. process. Do you write by hand or do you keyboard it in? I, I write on my computer and I'm grateful for, you know, I think it's the most wonderful writing instrument ever made. And, uh, you know, just for instance, I started out on a typewriter mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the cut and paste is, you know, kind of a metaphor, but it wasn't. Right. <laughs> it was, uh, when I, you know, I would type up a, uh, a, a couple of pages and I realized that one of the paragraphs is out of order so I'd get the scissors out and oh, cut it gosh. out the paragraph and sometimes cut around you know sentences those tiny stuff. little jars of white out uh, yeah right and then take I, I use tape but sometimes you know these pages would get really thick with you know layers of inundations and mm-hmm. so along comes the computer where you can just move things around yeah and I think it was weird because there were a lot of writers saying this is going to hurt writing. This is destroying the creative process. I thought they, you're crazy. If you can type well, I think it accelerates it. I'm just a terrible typist, so I, I can well, do things it by helps hand. to be able to type. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a sacrifice that you know I'm. I'm so even in about. your interviews, how do you, do you? I guess maybe you record your interviews and then type later, or do you take notes and with by pen then? I. When I'm interviewing, if I were interviewing you, I would have a manila sheet, you know, I'd have a, you know, legal pad mm-hmm. and uh, I, it would have a number on it. You know, it's, it's I, the fifth pad in our, in my story and, mm-hmm. and your name would be, uh, I'd make a little index on the side where that little inch and a half is uh, on the left hand side. I'd have the, each of the, you know, the interviews I index there and I, uh, I I always take handwritten notes, but I always record if I'm allowed. Yeah. And uh, then uh, I can go back. And nowadays you can feed your you know interview into a, a transcriber, but they're pretty iffy right now. Uh, but and so you can go back and look in your handwritten notes and see what mm-hmm. uh, was actually said. And then uh, I take. Uh, there, not everything you record or you know write down is of use to you, but there are meaty places that you want to capture, and you make sure you get them into your narrative. And that's when I start enlisting the note cards. Mm-hmm. And if you know you look at the Looming Tower, you know where I had six hundred interviews, and I don't know how many books I read and so on. I could never remember that stuff, you know. So I, I, I kept. Uh, an ongoing file of note cards mm-hmm. and there were thousands you know yeah but they were well organized so that if uh you know i knew i was going to write about bin laden and so what about bin laden you know you have a you have a little those little plastic tabs you know yeah, that, yeah. i'm sort of the master of plastic stripping you know but uh be keep, keeping been, track of those sources is yeah. if you don't do it up front it's a nightmare later you're up all night looking for where the hell did I get that piece of information that's and, exactly what happened to yeah. me to make me you know I was so frustrated by the stop and go nature of writing because I would not remember who told me what or where or, you know mm-hmm. and I'd get it wrong and I'd, I'd have to go back and change it and finally I in a fit of despair I thought <laughs> I'm going to have to put all this on note cards yeah. and the it's front end loaded in terms of effort and nobody I've preached this gospel for many years and nobody ever takes me up on it because it's so much trouble in the beginning. But once you have it all laid out in your note cards, 
everything moves really quickly because you can just put your hands on it's right there. Yeah. And so you don't stop and rummage and go through, you know, all your notes and stuff like that and pull your hair out. And it creates, I, a, at least in the process of writing, there's a propulsion that you you have. You can just keep moving. And I, I tell myself at least that it adds that sense of forward momentum to yeah. the narrative. Yeah. I think I missed it by about a half generation but apparently there's software that does a lot of this, but I'm still an index card type person as I've well. I've tried the software, but it, you know, it's not the same. Yeah. How about for the novel? Do you outline or do you dive in? No, I outline, yeah. uh, you know, and I, I oftentimes, you know, with, uh, it, every project is a little different, but with, uh, with movies, if I'm writing a script for a movie, I'll make a lot of, you know, there's no narrative. You're just writing scenes and, you know, you have to create a a whole movie's worth of scenes. And so a lot of times I'll just write out a scene idea and toss it into a pile and just keep throwing things out until the pile gets of a certain size. And then I close the door and I start laying out these note cards in a, in a, in a certain form of narrative in three acts. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then you visualize it. it's right there in front of you. You know, you can see where the holes are and where things, too many things are happening here and not enough here. And so you just move things around and then you create bridges between this action and that action. And that, mm-hmm. and with a play, I use two acts and, you know, it, I don't always do that, but that is something I, I, I feel is the best way of, for me to go about arranging a story. Mm-hmm. By the way, I'm loving the the Ian Fleming. He was onto something. The Vesper <laughs> yeah. Martini is, yeah, it's is, good, isn't it? is terrific. I wanted to ask you one other thing. Uh, this is sort of a, a, to round out process, and it's really only kind of loosely related to process, but it was something that you also said in that same New York Times article, and it reminded me of something Nelson DeMille said. He he was one of our first guests on this show, and oh, really? Nelson is a, is a good friend and a, and a great guy. And his fiction debut was... Uh, by the Rivers of Babylon in 1978, so uh-huh. one year before your nonfiction debut in 79. And one thing Nelson said when he came on the show was that the language has changed since he began writing. You know, even really like sentence by sentence, we just, we we tell the novel in a different way than we did yeah. those decades ago. And he's adapted and he, you know, he sort of moves along. But, you know, I just remember him saying so clearly the language has changed. And you said something in that interview that was, Slightly different, but I think related in some way in that you would go back and read novels or other things mm-hmm. that you loved decades ago, and you would reread them, and it, it wouldn't read the same way, yeah. and not in a good way. And some hold up and some don't. Right. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about what you mean there and any thoughts you might have as well on, on Nelson's thoughts about the language well, changing. It, it's you know, we grow up, we change, and and so does the language, and so does the culture, and but I think there, you know, and maybe an analogy is music. You know, you've got the big band sound of the '40s, and then you know the early rock and roll of the '50s, and then the acid rock and stuff like that. It's all music, and it's all wonderful, you know, uh, but it's of an era, and uh, you know the. I, what do you think it is about a book that then transcends the era? Like certain big band songs, I suppose we still love, but what is it about a particular novel that might make it 
propel through the decades and still read great today while another might fall short of the mark? I think, you know, Hemingway is a good example of something that has been very durable. And I think it's because it's clean. You know, there's nothing fancy about his writing. And it has a hardness to it mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, I love Robert Penn Warren, for instance. And, you know, uh, you know that. But I started I read through it again not too long ago. And I, it's still a wonderful book, but you have to enter into the kind of style uh, that it's written in. When I was a college kid and read it the first time, it just awakened me. It was, I thought, you know, the, the you know, it was the, you know, the great American novel. Why did we have to look around for anything? And uh, I still revere it, but it's not, it doesn't have the same effect on me. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the writers that I I tend to admire the most have um, a certain sincerity to their prose. There's, it's not straining for effect. You know, George Orwell has always been a model for me uh, because I, you know, you you can't place his prose in a period of time. Mm-hmm. It is timeless in in the best sense. It's beautiful. But the beauty is in its clarity. It's ex- it says exactly what it means. Every word is perfectly chiseled into place. And so you, you can't be distanced from it because of, of another era. It sort of transcends time. Hmm. That, is, that is beautifully put. I'm going to go back and when, I, when this episode releases, I'm going to go back and listen to this segment because I want to hear all you right. say all that stuff again. Um, I, I just wanted to pick one of, before we get into Mr. Texas, I wanted to pick one other book of yours that I also devoured, which was Going Clear, yeah. and uh, which is your 2013 book that kind of takes the lid off Scientology and then does a deep, deep dive into it. And I wanted to talk to you not only about the research you did for it, but also the experience of doing it, because I know some people who've done some coverage of the church of Scientology and have worked on films about it. and some of these people were fairly brass knuckle type people that I would say don't scare easy. And they became scared. They were worried about being followed around and their trash gone through and various other threats. They, they got a little nervous and I feel like the church isn't maybe quite as scary as it was 10 years ago. I could be wrong, but I would imagine in 2013, you're probably working on this for a few years prior. What was all that like? Well, uh, there was harassment, you know, it, it um, and I expected it, and and so did the New Yorker. I mean, I'd give New Yorker credit. We had a fact checker on the story for a year, and then when we finally were closing, we had six. <laughs> One of them was the head of the fact checking department, just anticipating litigation over whatever. We knew they would be looking for something, mm-hmm. and even I changed my writing style somewhat because uh, I, I practically eliminated any adjectives or adverbs you know that were you know if i said that you know for instance the leader of the church david miscavige was very anxious i didn't want to be on the stand and have to defend the word very well, he seemed a little anxious to me. <laughs> he was anxious <laughs> in my opinion he was anxious okay <laughs> and so i uh but and so the, the the strategy of the church with its reputation for being brutal to his critics was to build a kind of electric fence around the subject so that they protected themselves from exposure mm-hmm. and um and it worked i mean there were you know the truth is there there were some wonderful 
articles and books written about Scientology before I got into it. But basically, they evaded scrutiny and uh, with this reputation of theirs. And they had earned their... I mean, before I got into it, I mean, they had tried to set somebody up to go to a mental hospital and a prison and, you know, there were murder plots and, you know, there's, it just really dangerous, unscrupulous behavior. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we were anticipating that something bad could happen. But on the other hand, it was such a great story. It was amazing. <laughs> so, I couldn't, I mean, I don't even know if you call it narrative nonfiction or whatever you call it, but I I tore through that book as well. I mean, that just page after page, you're reading stuff that you're like, oh my it's gosh, mind blowing, like, it's mind blowing. It? And and uh, so whatever anxiety, so to use that word again, uh, th- I might have felt uh, was ameliorated by the fact that I knew I had a great story, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm supposed to have. I mean, I'm, my purpose on life in life is is to find and explore and write about uh, great experiences. And, and, and live uh, to tell the tale. <laughs> well, they did put a private investigator on me. And uh, it was, there was I have, I, an element of silliness about it. It wasn't silly for the people who were my sources. They were persecuted, some of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, but was, it, was the screenwriter... Uh, one of your sources, I can't. I'm blanking on the guy's name right now. Paul Haggis. Haggis, yes. Yeah. Did, did he speak to you? To you? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, and um, I mean, he's had a hell of a time. He's yeah, had all, he has. Uh, you know, all sorts of charges against him. I don't know, true or not. I don't know. But he predicted that it yeah. would happen. Um, it, it there was a when the article came out in New Yorker, um, the uh, you know first hint that things were going to go weird. Uh, there's they printed out. Uh, you know, our, our Valentine's Day issue is always the courtly English gentleman with a monocle, you know, Eustace Tilly is his name. And uh, it's a signature of the New Yorker. And so they they did a mock New Yorker with me as Eustace Tilly with the monocle. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, but it was a real, you know, hit job. And they passed it out in Times Square and uh, it was I, I I was amused by it, except that they attacked the fact checkers by name, and it really pissed me off. Um, but then they sent this uh, FBI now FBI uh, private investigator, um, and now I live in Austin in a quiet street, and I rarely go out, so. It wasn't much <laughs> for him to do, but he would follow me around to speeches that I made, and you know, and as I said to you, did earlier, he want to make himself known to you yes, to intimidate he you? He wasn't trying to quietly spy on no, you; he was it, trying to intimidate it, you too. Actually, you know, I'm in a band, and he came to one of my gigs and asked me to sign his book. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I felt kind of soft on him, yeah. but uh, but that's the kind of treatment I get. But to be intimidated by the church is a kind of you have to agree to be intimidated. And, you know, they, the fact that this guy was following me around, it, it just, it wasn't intimidating. You know, it just mm-hmm. wasn't. It, but on the other hand, they, the, the way they treated some of the, my sources was, you know, just appalling. And um, I, I regret that they had to go through that. They knew what they were getting into, but mm-hmm. um, it, was, it was shocking to see it happen. Well, it's a, it's a great book. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Ever been to Delaware? If not, now's the time to visit. You'll find a lot of fun in a little state. Since you can drive anywhere in the state in a couple of hours, you'll spend less time driving and more time enjoying. Explore from the bays to the beaches, stroll the boardwalks, and have an oceanside bonfire. Get a taste of Delaware at one of the award-winning restaurants and enjoy a local craft brew. See the first state's unique historic landmarks and experience Delaware's endless discoveries. Plan your adventure today at visitdelaware.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mr. Texas, which I would love to talk about now because the, the book is newly out. I devoured it. I, I loved it's it's got real life characters, real life events as sort of a scaffolding for the book, but it's yeah. it's fiction, and you tell a great uh, a great story here. And I I wanted to tell you I I loved the first page of the book in particular. I mean the whole thing you, you just yeah. it sets the trajectory. I just feel like anybody who is aspiring to write or just wants to read an example of how to begin a novel. And just as a, as a quick side story, I went on Imus's show yeah. years ago with yeah. my first book. And so he gets on there in that gravelly voice and I'm young and scared. And he's like, oh, I've got this first page test, you know, uh, that, that'll be the limit. I will tell this without doing his, uh, imitating his but voice you anymore. But pretty well there. <laughs> and he goes, I do a first page. So when I get to the bottom, I just decide I'm either putting it down or I'll yeah. keep going. That's my first page test. And I'm thinking, oh my God, where's he going with this? What is he, what is he going to say about me? Uh, but with your your first page, it did so much. It it talked about you know the flyover country and uh, that sort of you know sort of fleeting acknowledgement and and almost dismissive uh, view of those flying over from coast to coast. Uh -huh. And it just was did a wonderful job of hooking the reader and setting the trajectory for the whole book. So I just first wanted to compliment you yeah. on how you began the book. Well, thank you. You know you. I starting is always the hardest part isn't it you know mm -hmm. where do you begin and 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 I, in the different iterations i've begun in different places but i was i was happy with what we started on this one it was great and you've done a lot of research i think some of it you may have known just through your your life in texas but it goes from you know old sam rayburn who was yeah. lbj's mentor up to yeah. you know present day figures um and uh you know it 
I, I don't, I won't spoil anything here, but in the very end, so I'll, I'll go from very beginning to very end, but the way you left it, like the head or the heart thing, and I'll say no more other than yeah. that, because you know what you're, what I'm talking about, but I've been wrestling. I think I know what you meant, but I've been flip-flopping on it a little bit. So maybe after the show, you can, uh, well, the, you can tell me more about the that. The idea about the ending is to show what's at stake mm-hmm. and, you know, that, and that change can happen. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean it's going to be better. It's just that change will happen. But, you know, we also have to appreciate what we have on the table. What kind of research were you doing for this one? Oh, Doug, this started so long ago. <laughs> I, I, it, Ann Richards was governor, uh, and my hero right. was a Democrat. Uh, in fact, uh, Texas was blue, and I was going to wrote it as a screenplay. Then I thought I would direct it or I would uh, make a television series or something like that. And um so i went over and i love the house of representatives uh it's like a there are 150 representatives and uh representing now 330 million uh texans and they come from you know far west texas or east texas or big d or houston or and they're teachers or nurses they're ex-football players they're mayors you know they're billionaires they're scarcely making a living it's a concentrate of the state and it's all in this one big room and every other year it's you know the kind of mr smith goes to austin all these people come in from all over so i went to see the speaker at the time was pete laney he was a cotton farmer from the panhandle Mm -hmm. and uh i told him you know i had this idea of writing this script about the House of Representatives, and he said, it's been the dream of my life to have a television series set in the Texas House of Representatives. <laughs> I thought, wow, <laughs> this is going to be too hard. <laughs> and they love to tell stories. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, it, the state evolved into a different entity over that time. Um, you know, the the Democrats lost. Uh, the Republicans came in. It, it had been all blue. It was all red, and uh, and the issues changed. Um, and I had been intermittently writing about it. Uh, I did a New Yorker story uh, four or five years ago that became a book, God Save Texas, in which I covered a, a legislative session in the ta- the House, and uh, that really prepared me. Mm-hmm. Uh, set me up for the the modern incarnation of Texas politics. It is interesting because we forget, you know, we think in the last 10 years that Texas has been solidly red and like maybe it's getting slightly purplish now. But yeah. to your point, you've been, when you began this, it was more blue going back, not, it was not all that long ago. Blue period. You know, yeah. uh, it was there. I don't, the first time we, you know, when we moved to Dallas in 1960, that was the first city to go red in Texas. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a congressman named Bruce Alger, uh, who was a nut, but uh, he, you know, he, he was the first Republican to get elected uh, and go to Congress since, like, I don't know exactly when, but around the Civil War era. And um, so, you know, the state is more volatile than people give it credit for. And, you know, the demography is changing so profoundly right now that anyone who thinks that they know where it's going is is making it up because uh, we don't know. I mean, I thought it would be blue by now. Mm-hmm. And uh, but the cities are growing. The cities are blue. 
The young people are in revolt against the old guard Republicans and uh, is now a majority-minority state. So all of these things signal that a massive change is headed our way. Mm -hmm. And it's important. It's not just about Texas. You know, I don't think people outside of of the state realize that Texas is supposed to be larger or nearly as large as California and New York combined by the year 2050. That I I came across. That's amazing. Well, think about how important Texas Texas is is now. Would it by landmass? It must be that. Times a, times a lot. I mean, it's, yeah, it's huge. I, well, my, the district, the real life district that my hero represents is District 74, which is larger than Connecticut. Wow. And uh, so it's, but it, the concentration of population, the electoral votes, you know, it will, it will, mm-hmm. it will dominate the electoral college. And, you know, the, the money that's moving into Texas and all of that. So in every respect, Texas is going to magnify in importance to the point that it will govern American politics. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think most people have realized that, but it's what's really worrying me is most Texans haven't taken on the responsibility of being the leader. I mean, ever since I was a kid, you know, there was a sense that America is ruled by these coastal elites and Texas is this sort of rump or orphan, you know, with a chip on its shoulder and we do things our own way and so on. Well, that's fine if you're a no-count state that doesn't have a fit, but to, it's not to, not to be the leader. Right. And that, it was, you know, to some extent, that was one of the big motivations for me to want to write this novel so I could explain Texas to Texans and to non-Texans, but also I hope that they would come away with an appreciation of the consequences of what Texas is becoming. Well, especially as it gets more purple, because if you're solidly red, solidly blue, you don't get a lot of visits in presidential election season. You're kind of solidly there already. They're going to the 15 or so purple states. And if Texas becomes purple, that's, that'll be the number one Number one, you know, forget Iowa or whatever. It'll be the, that'll be the number one battleground. Yeah. But so as listeners may have picked up on, the book is uh, looks at politics at a state level in Texas. And there's a protagonist, Sonny Lamb, who's a sort of down on his luck rancher, farmer, and uh, in a, surrounded by, you know, anyone in this area where there's sort of drought conditions, everyone's sort of down on their luck a little bit. Yeah. He, he makes a run at, at state level politics. And I wanted to, one, one last question before we get into the lightning round is uh, Sonny Lamb. I was wondering, do you do the sort of sometimes tip your hand a little bit in the naming of the character? Well, kind of- I did a little bit. I, but there is, Lamb is actually a common Texas name. And uh, there's a big ranch out in West Texas called Lamb's Head. And, um, you know, there, you know, little little things like that resonate in the back of my mind mm-hmm. until someday they become of use. There was, you know, one of the major figures is Sonny's wife, Lola, um, and she's a real cowgirl. I mean, it, it's her ranch. And uh, years ago, there was a Texas Monthly issue devoted to cowgirls, and there was an image of this woman on the cover who, she was attractive. She wasn't pretty, in it, but she was kind of hard and intriguing looking and she had a little scar on her cheek which you would never see in a new york model you know but you you just you knew she was tough and i thought this woman hasn't ever been written about 
you know, I I would like to, you know, I filed it away that mm-hmm. one day I'm going to explore who this woman is. Hmm. It's funny with character names. I sometimes, you know, I haven't written fiction in a while, but when I was, I would often work in the library. And so for character names, I would just take a break and spin around in my chair and just read names off the, yeah. the by. I, there's no way I made that up. I'm sure I read that somewhere, but I, I have done that a few times. And if I ever become a big star, I'll, I'll auction them off like the, uh, like the <laughs> other big stars do, you know, there'll be some charitable auction and you can pay some amount of money to name a character in a book. Yeah. It'd it take a load off our shoulders, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So on to the lightning round with Larry Wright. First question is your favorite book as a kid. Well, it's kind of a hard question because, uh, you know, there was in the Hardy Boys series, for instance. I was really intrigued by that. And I, I love the it was kind of a film noir for <laughs> for adolescent boys. And uh, they, I, they, I got these kind of uh, adventure books about, you know, uh, uh, American Revolution or Pony Express and stuff like that. I just gobble mm-hmm. those up. But when we moved to Dallas, um, if this still is kid time, uh, when I was in the eighth grade, uh, during the summer, we'd always, my, me and my two sisters and my mother, we'd go to the library with cardboard boxes and load up. And That's great. One, one week, I kind of unloaded the whole uh, shelf on abnormal psychology. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it would co- you know, you know, stuff like ESP and so on. But mm-hmm. one of the books, or maybe two, was about hypnotism. So I taught myself how to hypnotize my sister. Did that and, work? Could you oh, actually yeah, do it? I, and I, up until through college, I used I've to never hip- been a believer in that. You legitimately hypnotize your sister? Well, I stuck pins in her. So <laughs> that's <laughs> just to that see. That sounds legitimate. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and I'm so grateful for the library. Um, I'm sure she is too. <laughs> but uh, it was. Uh, it, you know, you, 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 libraries are amazing. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, I mean, of course, we're going through this book banning thing in in, yeah. uh, in Texas right now, and they're banning things about transsexuals and so on. But oh, there's nobody like Charlotte's Web and crazy yeah, things like and that. And the it's Bible out of, out and, of and, and leaving uh, Cheyenne. But I don't think they're doing anything with abnormal psychology, <laughs> which is far more dangerous, <laughs> I can testify. So, and your sister can also testify. You know, on the Hardy Boys thing, speaking of the language changing changing and books, I was obsessed with the Hardy Boys. I had a whole, I don't know, 12 or 18 months where that's all I would read. I think yeah. I read them all. Yeah. And so when my kids got to that age years ago, I was like, here's the Hardy Boys, guys. Yeah. Like, you're going to yeah. love it. And yeah. nothing. Crickets. Right. They didn't ever, they've read Diary of a Wimpy Kid and, and oh. Spy School and other books right. that are great. I love those yeah. too. I've kind of read along with them. But Hardy Boys didn't stick at all for whatever reason. Uh, book or books you're reading now? And I know you're on a you're on the big book tour, so maybe not a lot of time. But what's on the well? Stand? Actually, at this very moment, I'm reading David Grand's The Wager, and uh, I read that. Know, That's awesome. It is. I I've I've read. No, I don't. I think I've read most of his books. I don't know how many he's written, but. Uh, He's turning into the kind of Colleen Hoover of nonfiction. He's <laughs> occupying way too much space on the bestseller well, list. Well, look, it's paying all our salaries, so yeah. we can't complain. Uh, but uh, it's a thrilling book, and I'm yeah. really enjoying that. I've, I've also got a, 
uh, I picked up this book, The Sullivanians, about this uh, psychoanalytic cult on the Upper West Side that was there in the 50s and 60s. Oh, I have heard of that. It's fascinating. I I used to live on the Upper West Side, so I didn't hear about that. Well, you know, apparently a lot of people knew about it, but, uh, you know. It was was like right under our noses all this time. That's what's, and I thought I knew a lot about cults, but, you know, this one escaped me. And a friend just gave me a first edition of uh moss hearts act one you know i i, I love theater and so mm-hmm. uh i'm p- intending to read that as soon as i settle down great yeah when you're when you're off tour you can put your yeah. feet up and get some well-deserved rest least attended book event ever <laughs> uh well the uh on this, every book tour has this moment of humiliation. <laughs> so <laughs> there was a time disparity between my schedule and with the bookstore, uh, the bookstore advertising me, my appearance at six and my schedule saying seven. I think it was the East Coast versus Central time. Uh-huh. And so by the time I arrived, there was one person <laughs> waiting. <laughs> but I think the, the, the one that comes to my mind, the, the, the there was a reading in Austin where I live and I I walked in um, with some friends. We were going to go to eat afterwards. And so uh, the guy standing at the information desk said, oh, Mr. Wright, nobody's coming. (laughs) How do you know that? Oh, we canceled the ad. Oh, well, why? Well, you signed some books at another bookstore. Well, I, I didn't know that it was against the law, you know. It's retribution for you going to yes, another. Yeah, it was unbelievable. It was, and so I, I said, well, let me go upstairs at the you know the reading area and just see. If there's nobody there because I don't want to not show up. Mm-hmm. And there was nobody there. And I said, well, let's go to dinner. And then a guy with a bedroll on a backpack walked in. So oh man! I did the whole thing for him. And it's it's you know, but. It, any writer, I'm sure you have had your own experiences. Yes, there's always, you know, I so I ask this question every show, and everyone's got an amazing story, but that might be the most outrageous one I've heard. Well, no, I'll tell you the most outrageous one, which is that uh, my sister Rosalind uh, wrote a, a novel when she was in college, and she's written another one since, but um, it was about an old folks' home in Wood County, Texas, which is uh, northeast Texas. And um, so they had her come to the Wood County Fair, uh, and they just judged the livestock, uh, you know, and there was a, the blue ribbon goat was on stage and tied to a chair that she sat in. And as she was trying to read, the goat kept pulling her <laughs> off the stage. So I think, I think that's probably... Yeah, that does take the cake. Yeah. Yeah, in the outrageous category, I suppose. But the other one, what year was the one where they canceled your show because you signed books at some other store? I'm not sure because it was... I mean, was it, post, sure was it post-Looming Tower? Oh, I think so, yeah. Outrageous. So you're a Pulitzer Prize winning writer, and they that's crazy. Yeah. I, I, offline, I would like to know which store did that. Um, next question. The state in the union for which the expression truth is stranger than fiction best applies. Well, Texas really wins. uh, uh, And I think internationally it's known uh, that Texas is there's a I don't speak 
Norwegian, except for this one phrase, Dervot, Dervot Helt, Texas, which means it was totally bonkers. And I asked a Norwegian <laughs> friend of mine, you guys really say that? And he said, he sort of sheepishly, yeah, we do, but it's meant with a touch of admiration. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, if, if, listeners, if you want to know more about Mr. Texas is the book you need to read because uh, Larry, Larry catches it all. All right, so this one, going back to, to going clear, though. Prediction on the next celebrity defection from Scientology. Well, the ranks are getting pretty thin there. So, uh, <laughs> Tom Cruise is in the papers now and again about distancing himself a bit. Well, he has in the past, and he was rolled back in. Um, mm. So, you know, they reeled him in. This is long ago. Uh, you know, I don't think that uh, that he will leave, but I don't put it out of out of reach because, honestly. There has to be a reckoning with Scientology. You know, it's it's harmed so many lives, and he knows that. Um, you think he knows that? I, you know, he's been on the Sea Org base. They serve him. Uh, but he doesn't see the things they don't want him to see, right? He doesn't look at them. Uh, he, he said he read my book and found it boring. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. But I, if, if nothing else, he was informed by that. Uh, but... I think he's got uh, a moral responsibility uh, because so many people went into Scientology because of his example, mm-hmm. and he needs to set the example of writing the church. I mean, I'm not opposed to Scientology. I people can believe whatever they want, and many people. But there, there are certainly teachings of it that make a ton of sense, and you can see yeah. why people would come in there, and it's helpful, and it's like any sort of doctrine that can you can lean on. But yeah, I, uh, what yeah. you have in your book is so. Unreal. As you say, it's just, it's incredible. I, I, well, there are human rights violations that, I, that, that he must share some responsibility for. So in, how could he make amends? He could come out and say that. And uh, the church would spin on it. There are only a couple of ways that Scientology can be changed. One is the IRS rescinds its uh, decision right, that it's exemption. an actual church, you yeah. know. And that only the so listeners know they get it. They have a full. They're viewed as a church. It's it's a big tax thing, really a tax scheme. And they got it. They got their tax exemption by filing hundreds of lawsuits against the IRS and individual members to the point that the just buried them. The in IRS, and they also spied on it. They had this operation Snow White, where they had they penetrated the FBI, the Justice Department, and you know mm-hmm. even newspapers of Washington Post. I mean, all these different entities of government is the biggest spy operation in American history against the government. And, you know, they 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 did, you know, seven people went to prison for it. But, uh, you know, they never really have been held accountable for, you know, what they've done as an institution. But could Tom Cruise really come out and say this i mean don't they kind of have the goods on them you do the you do the e-meter stuff yeah, and you give I, all your darkest secrets right. and all the things you've done wrong and then they've they've got it he'd have to should, he'd have to endure the embarrassment of uh, perhaps of something he might have said and uh you know he but on the other hand he knows a lot about the church mm-hmm. so if i were i wouldn't want to go against tom cruise especially if he you know he He's been at the highest level of the church for decades. He knows everything that's happened. Yeah, yeah so he's got the goods on them too. It's yeah. sort of a 
sort of an, an arms race. Um, well, so so uh, getting back to the question, then, who's the next celebrity defection? Well, I'll just say Tom, and we'll, yeah. we'll see. Uh, okay. <laughs> people say, mean, choices uh, are Travolta. No, you know, who's tra- else I don't he- think John Travolta will ever leave. And um, is and, Will Smith in there? I can't remember. I can't say for sure, but he and his wife started a school that was based on the principles of L. Ron Hubbard, and uh, and I don't I don't think that they're still operating that school, um, so I don't know. And uh, but you know there are I I understand that there are a lot of people in the church that simply don't want their affiliation to be known. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, and it, that was one of the reasons I was interested in writing it. I mean, why would anybody join this church when it seems like a public relations martyrdom? Mm-hmm. You know, people mm-hmm. think you're, you know, deluded or you know you're in a cult or whatever. And so it's it's. Um, well, there it seems like there's some infrastructure, and they give support to people. I don't know. Yeah, they maybe do. maybe they don't have the power to propel someone's career than in the way that they used to, but. Well, it gets back to the sense of community that we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, they help each other, you know, it's true. And there's certain people who were born, like, who who's the actress who's on Mad Men and then Handmaid's Tale? Uh, she was born into it. Yeah. And uh, I can't remember her name. I can She's remember the hugely name. hugely famous her, actress. Her <laughs> character's name was Peggy, but I can't Right, Peggy on Mad Men, <laughs> yeah. that one. Yeah. She's in there, but she was born in there, right? Well, and that was true. And, and to, so maybe that's to the point, like, they can navigate a career for you a little bit you know I'm, I'm sure she might not have had some of the acting breaks she had but for the church getting i don't her think there. the church has very much power in hollywood honestly okay. I, I think it's you know they when i was writing it you know they they would go out to um casting calls mm-hmm. and uh pass out brochures you know how to get an agent and you know those kinds of things come mm-hmm. to the celebrity center uh, in hollywood and uh, and they would hear uh, one of the notable people in Scientology talk about navigating the professional thing. But also, we have courses that will help you. Mm-hmm. Like Jerry Seinfeld took uh, a communications course at at Scientology and found you know very helpful. But he never wanted to go back. Uh, so you know, I I think that there are you know there are courses there. There's certain therapy that mm-hmm. you know thoughtfully administered can be helpful i i never would object to that kind of thing yeah. is you know but people that's joined the sea org where you're supposed to you know last for a billion years of service and you know some of them locked up for more than a year in uh in a double wide trailer and there are these games that are played on them they're just you know there's it's it's separation from family you know the mm-hmm. forbidding people to see their relatives yeah that's but, really you know I, cool. I remember seeing an interview with russell crowe years ago who's australian and i think because he's australian he was friends with nicole kidman who at the time was married to tom cruise and he said they went to dinner and the topic came up and tom cruise was very cool about it he said it's this thing you know describe it for a second he's like if you want to know more you can you can call me later and then dropped it there I wasn't trying to recruit wasn't trying to espouse anything yeah. it was just said it, this is something that works for me and if you want to know more you can call me and, and left it there and russell said he's you know yeah. very nice guy about it so yeah i don't doubt that yeah. you know all right so next question uh favorite few recent tv shows to recommend to listeners you know during the writer's strike uh you know which i support as a you know member of the writers guild uh 
you know, everything got kind of frozen. And Netflix started uh, putting on a lot of foreign movies. And it's a lot of things that, I, you know, just I hadn't seen as mm-hmm. on their menu. And Netflix is very clever because they operate in different countries. And so the writer strike didn't affect them as it did a, a lot of other mm-hmm. venues. And so we started watching especially a lot of movies from the Middle East. And there's some wonderful ones. And I... Uh, I particularly like this one called Omar. I'm, I'm getting my pen out, Omar. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a sandstorm, which is about a Bedouin family in in uh, in southern Israel, uh, and the you know the father trying to marry off his daughter. Uh, but I found it really exciting because it, these were I've seen some series from the Middle East and stuff like that. But I felt, I thought the artistic sensibility of this, there's another movie called Bethlehem. Um, and I, I don't know. I've watched a bunch of them. I can't remember all their titles, but uh, I've been following that. And I think it's a, it's an artistic explosion that I'm very yeah. pleased by. It is. It is nice. I hadn't really thought about it that way that Netflix is in some ways the way in, but these South Korean shows are yeah. sort of exploding onto the scene. And there was a French detective show that I really enjoyed that's right, in subtitles, right. but that I, I enjoyed, I would never have otherwise watched a French yeah. you know, detective show. I, in a way it, it testifies to the, you know, the cultural dominance of the U S is ebbing. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, but then you get, you know, it's all refreshed by these different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Last question for Lawrence, Wright: One piece of advice for the listeners. Well, I, when I was, um, I just switched the advice. I, um, sometimes I have these, uh, mandates that come into my head. It's almost like spoken to me, you know? And when I was in Greece with my wife, we were on our 20th anniversary. We had been married in Greece. Um, and we went to Epidavros, which is in the Peloponnese, and it's just fascinating place um you know you know how in a pharmacy you see the staff with the snakes coiled around it uh, it's sort of the symbol of medicine mm-hmm. well yeah. that comes from epidavros the, the treatment um was you crawl into this labyrinth that's covered and it's full of snakes and uh, you, you get out, you know, if you get out, uh, <laughs> you know, you may be cured of, I suppose, the hysterical cases and stuff like that. But that was why uh, mental institutions were called snake pits. And uh, anyway, it no, was in, in, in a way very inspiring because you could see, you know, the, the, this vivid culture with great, you know, the, the Olympics started there and the theater, you know, they had a fabulous theater. And uh and there was something about it made me think that I needed to be more participatory in my culture. And so it, this voice said, take your place. And I, you know, I was 40 something years old. You know, I was still in kind of adolescence, you know, and that I had not assumed my adult responsibilities and do all the things a citizen, you know, a full citizen like in ancient Athens would have done. And uh, anyway, I came back and I felt like many things changed in my life because I decided it was time for me to grow up. That's great. Take your place. Yeah. 
Well, Larry, as I said up front, it is really an honor to have you here. Thanks so much for coming in. I, I love this. Oh, me too. It was a lot of fun. And that you make a pretty good drink. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.